Hello and welcome to this episode of Turing's Triple Helix, the podcast channel for Scotland's AI strategy. I'm Will Millership from the Scottish AI Alliance, and today I'm joined by Dr. Stuart Gray. Stuart is a senior lecturer in engineering systems design at the University of Glasgow and founder of Student Voice, a machine learning platform which is focused on analyzing student feedback. He'll be joining us on the AI Data and Education panel at the Scottish AI Summit on the 30th of March. So um, without further ado, welcome, Stuart. It's great to have you on the podcast. Hi, Will. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Brilliant. So let's get straight into it. I mean, I've kind of looked at your your resume and you've got a very uh, extensive list of different experiences. So can you tell us a bit about yourself and, and in particular the, the work you do at Student Voice? Of course. So thank you. So that extensive list is more due to a lack of direction, maybe, rather than any sort of great design. Um, but my background, um, my PhD was in um, AI for space missions, as I'm a big sci-fi fan. So I sort of followed my dream there and had to do some great work with ESA there. Then went into the academic path, doing some uh, research work on precise orbit determination for climate change missions, which is really cool. But as part of that, I discovered I really loved teaching in a university environment and turned out I was okay at it too. So I kind of, over the years, have gone more and more towards that teaching side. And um, in particular, there's a couple of key moments when I came back up to Glasgow, to Strathclyde, uh, opportunity to work with supporting students from underrepresented groups, getting them into engineering in particular. And um, that sort of really, that sort of ethical approach really underlines a lot of what we're doing with student voice as well. So I was teaching these small groups of students from these underrepresented groups and also teaching very large first year undergraduate engineering classes. And through that, my engineering approach is I want to know how am I doing? Am I a good teacher? Am I a bad teacher? How can I improve? Most important thing, because if anything through my career has learned that as long as you know where to improve, you can improve. So I looked at the data, there wasn't any. There was the paper forms you've probably had at courses and classes where it said, how did you find this session? Um, but no one really filled them out. So I looked at building a more automated system for collecting that sort of feedback and making it useful um, in those contexts of smaller group work and also very large classes too. And it came down to the analysis of the free text comments of what students were saying after the class, because that was the most useful, actionable information I could get. And from that, uh, a platform, Student Voice, was born and eventually became the company it is today. Wow, it's really interesting, kind of linking your engineering experience into kind of your teaching experience and trying to find a measurable return on that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, really fascinating stuff. Um, so as you know, trustworthy, ethical and inclusive and are the three tenets of Scotland's AI strategy. And you've already touched on, you know, you already used the word ethical and inclusive in your intro. But uh, the role of inclusivity in particular seems to be a, um, a big issue for student voice. I was wondering if you could expand on that. Absolutely. So the platform fundamentally is about listening to students and using their comments to help improve our teaching and improve their, their learning outcomes. And as part of that, uh, we want to listen to everyone. So, and it's fundamentally, the listening to more people is better than listening to fewer. And doing something about what you're listening to is also very important. And a major problem with these things, uh, especially in, in universities, is there's a desire to listen to the student voice, as, as in what are students are saying. But 
where it falls down is doing something about it. And that's frequently because you've got all this data and you can't go through it line by line. You can't just pass it as a, you know, a mere human. So you need to have structures and systems to help you do that. So um, what Student Voice does is enable you to systematically listen to more people's opinions, which by its very nature is more inclusive. Um, another interesting aspect is because we uh, work with institutions across the sector and we have data from over 100 universities in the UK, we have that large data set and that allows us to look at very small subsets, very small groups that perhaps aren't particularly large numbers at a given university, so a very specific subgroup, say. Um, but when we've got this large data across the sector, we have enough students who meet those criteria, those different demographic mixtures and combinations, that we can actually say things about what their experiences have been and how their experiences compare to other groups. So it could be around gender, could be around the age of the student, could be around nationality and combinations of those. And once you start stacking these demographics up, you get down to very small percentages very quickly. But as we've got such a large data set, we can still make useful um, uh, analysis basically of those uh, groups um, and help institutions um, help their students, so help improve that teaching, help improve the student experience. That's, yeah, sounds Sounds really interesting, this kind of idea of listening to, yeah, how do you listen to more people? And I suppose you measure these across, these differences across universities, so you find the groups in the different universities and find similarities and differences. Um, and is it UK-based? Yeah, UK-based, UK-focused at the moment. And um, we'll be looking with interest internationally, actually, recently, and we'll be looking there, obviously, in the English-speaking world initially. But there's nothing fundamental in it that limits it to the UK. But what you need is that large, comprehensive data set that covers your bases. And that's what we have in the UK. Um, so that's where we're starting. Brilliant. So just to you know, understand a bit more about the, exactly what happens, because you know, text analysis sounds, sounds nice, but it's hard for me to kind of picture what that is. So I was wondering if you could tell uh, me and the listeners a bit more kind of in layman's terms about the AI technology that you use and how exactly it works. Yeah, of course. So you're very kind there, Will. It sounds very boring to most people, text analysis rather than anything else. Um, so there's two broad approaches that we take. And the first is supervised learning, and the second is unsupervised learning. So in supervised learning, we tell our models um, what a given text label should be. So a, a student comment that says um, the exam was terrible. We can label that comment with assessment, okay? And likewise, a comment that said, the test is terrible. We can label that with assessment. And these models in a supervised approach only can learn from the training set we give them. So we have to give them lots and lots and lots of human labeled text. Um, now, these are mathematical models and they have no real understanding at the most basic level of the English language. So you don't, so from a naive approach, you have to give them enough uh, labeled comments, enough context to basically reconstruct how grammar works, all these things. And that's not very efficient. So what we actually do is build on top of these huge models of the English language that the large um, multinational um, sort of Facebook, Google type companies are producing. And this lets us then layer our very domain specific interesting things on top of this huge English language model. So we get very fast returns on relatively small data sets because while we're looking at over 100 universities or 100,000 students, in terms of machine learning data sets, that's not huge. So we want to leverage the, the best practices, the state of the art wherever possible. 
And to go into a little bit more detail about how those work, we're not doing word matching. So we're not looking for the word exam or the word test. Instead, in these models, these really big underlying models of the English language, each word has a number of parameters. And I'll give a very quick example if we have time. So if we think of the word king, the word queen, and the word princess, right? And the parameters of those words could be royalty, could be male, and could be, say, age. So a king would have a very high royalty value, a king would have a very high male value, and probably a medium to high age value, whereas the word princess would have a high royalty value, okay, a very low male value, and a probably very low age value. And these are all numbers because these machine learning models are all numbers. So rather than saying we need to find the exact word exam, we can find words close by where those parameters match or close by for two words. We can then still apply our label, make the categorization. So this makes it so more powerful. So it doesn't have to have seen the exact word. It kind of understands what we're talking about. And we can look at words close by to the words in the label training set. And um, again, this just makes it much more powerful and far more flexible. So that's the supervised approach. That's the sort of the, the basic approach to give it lots of training data and train the models on that. But we have another approach, the unsupervised approach. And this is for when you don't really give the model much um, instruction, you say, here's all this text. You have that model of the English language. So it goes away and finds clusters. It group, tries to group those, those comments um, together into what it thinks are sort of thematic groups. And what you can do then is look at those groups and say, okay, do they match the labels we've already got? And this is a great way of saying, are the students saying something that we're not even thinking about categorizing? Okay. It allows us to keep on top of these things and constantly evolve our models. And basically that informs our supervised approach by what labels we apply to the text. We look at all the data across the, the whole sector and see what are the students talking about it, what are the main clusters, and we can go from there and make sure we are capturing everything we possibly can from this data set. Well, that sounds very really interesting. And thanks for the um thanks for the example. You know, it kind of gives me a bit more um clarity on on what on what exactly it does. So um on your website, I read that, you know, I read you've analyzed written comments from tens and thousands of students across hundreds of across over a hundred institutions. So um wanted to ask you what are kind of some of the most common findings that you get from your analysis, the kind of patterns that you get from students. Yeah. So it was really interesting, honestly, really interesting to dive into this sort of large data set and see what was going on. And again, there's two ways we split the data. So we can look at an institution as a whole and compare that to the sector as a whole. So we look at University A and compare that to all the universities in our data set. But to be honest, there's at those higher levels, there's normally very small deviations because, you know, a university of 20,000 students will be broadly the same as the sector. But what, when we start slicing that up, we can see some really interesting things. And one way we do that is by a course. So we can compare, say, all the engineering students against all the engineer at, at an institution against all the engineering students across the sector. And this lets us sort of dig into those areas where we know certain types of students have certain sort of uh, personalities, let's say, and talk about different things, have different problems, different expectations. But we can compare like for like. So we can say, we're not comparing engineering students against everyone. We're comparing engineering students against their peers at other institutions. So we can let, let universities know directly how they're measuring up. So if 
for instance, a certain cohort is more negative about some aspect, you can see compared to the sector how you're doing, you're not going to sort of throw your hands up in the air in despair um, because they may actually all be quite pessimistic across the sector and your comparison uh, lets you know that. And then what, what we also see is um, we split by demographics. And this is where it gets really interesting because, as, as I mentioned before, because we've got such a large data set, we can actually do some stacking of these demographics and get some interesting results there. And again, this is very broad and I'm limited in what I can say in terms of giving universities uh, results. But what one question we looked at recently was the institution's response to the, the pandemic. Like every institution is asking this. And the sentiment, because we don't just categorize, say, okay, this is about um, uh, tests, this is about uh, the classes. We also just basically decide, is that a positive or negative comment? Because a lot of these questions are open-ended. So we have that sentiment and we can see which demographics thought more positively or negatively of the university's response, of a given university's response to the pandemic. And for instance, we saw um, gender differences, and in particular, we saw age differences where the more mature students tended to have a more negative response, particularly because a lot of the um, in certain ways. So younger students missed out on the social working with other aspects. So university is sold to young people as a way of going to meet people, have fun, you know, moving on with your life, that freedom. And frankly, students during the pandemic in the first and second years didn't really get that. So there's a strong, strong sort of um, negative sentiment to those sort of questions. But the older students, interestingly, didn't really, weren't that bothered about that. The more mature students aren't necessarily there to make friends. They're there with a, with a sort of a much more focused view of, right, I'm getting this degree to help me get a job or uh, expand my career. Their problems, their negative sentiment was related to the workload in particular. And a lot of that we can think is just because of their their life at home. They probably had families, probably other things like I've got two young girls myself and it wasn't easy uh, suddenly doing everything and all these homeschooling things as well. So it's looking at different student cohorts and they might have a negative view, but it's why is that negative and what can we do to support these students? What can we do to support those undergraduate students who are really just missing that working with colleagues, that social aspect? They're actually enjoying the online working a lot. There's actually a very positive response to a lot of the online teaching. Whereas those older, more mature students frequently are struggling with the workload and maybe set times for certain things like uh, synchronous lectures rather than recorded asynchronous lectures, things like that. So it really comes down to what can we do for these different groups to support them? And to do that, we have to find out what their problems are. And that's what these large data sets lets us do. Thanks, Stuart. That was some really interesting results from your research, especially kind of around the yeah, different age groups reactions to the pandemic. Um, so moving on. Um, I want to ask you about a bit about design. So in particular, kind of how do you design your surveys in a way to make them most accessible to people? Is this something you take into account? That's a great question. So fundamentally, the best question to ask in a survey is no question at all. The smaller and more simple you can make your survey, the better it is, the better the results, but also the more accessible it will be. So what we try to do is um, basically heavily weight the free text uh, questions because they give us the most bang for your buck. Um, they let you uh, understand what the um, student is saying. And we're looking at this from a point of view of improving our teaching and improving that student experience. We don't necessarily care about the numbers, which a lot of these questions will be on a scale of one to five. What did you think of X, Y, Z? And that's good if you like numbers and tracking those numbers, but does it help you improve things specifically? Probably not. 
So we tried to make we tried to urge institutions to make the surveys as simple as possible and think about responding to them quickly and getting that uh, closing that feedback loop is the, the term term of the art. So students like to respond to surveys when they know they're being listened to and things changes are being made. And to be honest, not even about changes being made in education, you'll be give out a survey to students and they will say certain things are terrible. But really, 90% of the time, it's a, it's a case of explaining why you're doing something, what the rationale is. Things might seem onerous and sort of obtuse because they don't understand the reasoning behind doing things. And when we're trying to teach people, um, they frequently want a shortcut, right? They want to, okay, what's the answer? But that's not how you teach. You teach by giving them some, some tension, some creative tension there in their brain, having them have some unresolved questions and as you progress through the course you slowly answer those and that's how we learn to understand concepts be that in engineering or or the humanities so if you can explain the process there of okay we're not giving the answers this week because you need to work on them for two weeks and we'll give you you know the answers in two weeks time that frequently changes things so really it's about that response to students and making it worthwhile and then you get get away with a very simple very accessible uh, survey minimal number of questions available on smartphones generally um again there's lots of not to go into too much detail but they are very uh, widely used standards around making um websites accessible and we follow all of those of course and that means you get a lot of things for free you get all the screen readers on the phones if anyone has um sort of um accessible technology that they use to access their smartphone they can use it to do our survey because we keep it simple we're not doing anything too fancy or funny we just want them to get some text into our system so we can listen to them and then the university can respond sounds great yeah it's it's amazing that kind of importance of free tech those free text bubbles uh, for people to really express themselves but actually getting a way of amalgamating that and analyzing it properly because i mean i've done surveys on some level and to, it's always like the, i always think almost the opposite don't give people too much free text because then you can't kind of it's l less easy to able um to label but to have kind of a a system that can do that it must be extremely powerful so on, you know, now we're talking about the design of surveys. I'm wondering if there's any kind of questions, questions within surveys, both that you think are kind of redundant that get used too much or any that you think you can grab the most important information from. What kind of questions do you think? Yeah, no, it's, it's a really interesting field because there's been some interesting research done recently around what's called the, the halo effect of basically two or more questions are basically asking the same thing because the results are always in lockstep. So if you have questions where, say, these numerical, these Likert scale, say, one to five scale questions, and two or three of them are always basically showing the same relationships, you've got duplicate questions. Um, so you can remove those and you can do this in a rigorous manner. You can look at the results from your questions and go, actually, it's all just asking the same thing. But the interesting second level to that and what the research is showing just very recently, the paper's been published on this, is that in fact, you're rarely asking what you think you're asking. Something like 60, over 60% of the um, results coming back on those Likert scale questions is basically how likable the lecturer is in student comments. It's all just down to are they a likable person or not? And that's fantastic if you wanna know how likable someone is, 
But that doesn't give you any actionable insight into how to improve because that's what we're talking about here. We're not we're not trying to rank rank staff or say someone's better than someone else. We're trying to give them the tools to improve their teaching. Okay, so and you've got to listen to the students to do that. But if all the answers are telling you is how likable you are, okay, it's great for the ego to know. Oh, I'm more likable than other people. I'm quite likable. My likability is going up, but it doesn't help you improve <laughs> as an educator. So we've got to be really careful. And if we go in that knowledge that, say, two thirds of any any of those answers are basically about how likable someone is, then we have big problems. And we get onto the fact that certain demographics are systematically negatively impacted by these sort of questions, um, particularly young educators, women educators are negatively marked down compared to their peers when you normalize for everything else. So you get into a lot of issues when you uh, rely heavily on these sort of numerical grade type questions. Whereas in the free text comments, you do get that bias, as in you don't get away from the societal un unconscious or conscious bias against certain groups, but you can see it. It's plain to see what is happening and you, you see the words, you can see the description and you can actually tackle it in terms of, okay, these given comments, these answers are biased in this way. The use of language in particular is very um, powerful for that, but it lets you have that clear view of every sample is biased when you sample any population. But if you, as long as you know the biases, it's okay. You can work with that and you can get useful insight out of it. But when you just have a plain Likert scale set of questions and no free text option at all, then really you're just saying how nice someone is uh, frequently. <laughs> the classic one is the staff who give higher grades, get better responses, or get better higher things. Okay, fine. <laughs> so we know how to solve all our teaching issues, just give everyone A's. That's not the point, right? So we have to try and get away from that. And I think it's an interesting um, area and something that is really moving quite quite quickly because these institutions have all this data and we're getting the tools now that we can start to look at this data in a systematic way in, in a large scale. We can start to see these biases and actually try to um, negate those very, very uh, negative effects from them. Interesting. And what about the other side? What are well, you said like free text in in general is probably one of the most important. But any specific questions that you think you really end up, or I guess it depends on the survey as well. Yeah, it's very heavily dependent. And to be honest, is um, you maybe cut this out, if you like, but um, it, it's very question dependent. And a lot of free text questions are just giving someone the vehicle to express their feelings about the course. And if you'd give them a free text box and say, okay, just give me all the positive aspects or just give me the negative aspects, that can help sort of uh, crystallize things. But frequently students will just put in what they want in any free text box. They see, you know, they see any free, any free text box as the ability to communicate. And we've just got to accept that. Um, one thing we can do with the questions and one benefit of those scale questions isn't in the answers themselves, but in their ability to prime the student on the sort of things we're interested in. So we would will still typically have a few of the Likert scale questions, but we think of them as, okay, these are ways for us to make the students think about certain aspects of their experience. And then they that will come out in the free text comments. So things like, how did you find the use of the virtual learning environment? How did you find the transition to online learning? Things like that. And the numbers that come out of those are useful in their own right, as long as you can get away of the, the likability problem. But what they do is allow you to um, 
sort of get many more answers about those sort of things in the free text comments because the students are thinking about them then. Nice. So you've spoken a lot about kind of inclusivity and um, but the other two tenets of the Scotland's AI strategy are trustworthy and ethical. And I wanted to know kind of what these mean to you and not just in um, not just in student voice, but in general. But what does your product, um, how does it, how do you try and make it more trustworthy and ethical? Uh, one thing I'm thinking of is, you know, the students have to trust that it's going to make a difference to give feedback. And is that something you take into account or try and build that trust somehow? Um, absolutely. So it's very interesting. There's a lot of different aspects of these sort of words. They're very overloaded, as we'd say in the terminology. Um, but in terms of making it trustworthy, yeah, students have to trust that something's going to happen with their comment. Um, and you do that by responding to the comments. The fundamental thing, and this isn't an, an AI problem or an ML problem. This is a systems problem of responding to student comments. Where the AI ML stuff comes into it is being able to respond quickly. When you have a class of 300 students and 200 of them are giving you free text responses, it's hard to pass that. It's hard to give that sort of then give every comment um, it, it's due. But if we have an automated system to help you, you can, OK, look at that, see the main groups and then respond quickly. And it's all about that response. Students also have to trust that their responses are anonymous. Um, and again, we take that extremely seriously and, and all institutions do, too. Um, in these days of GDPR, um, everything is above board. Everything is very clear what data is stored, what data is not. And we've had incidents where institutions, there have been, say, um, borderline offensive comments given by students because it's an anonymous platform. So as you can imagine, uh, an anonymous free text box, some people will write nasty things. So the response is, OK, can we find who that student is? Like, do we de-anonymize them suddenly for that? And the answer is no, because, again, that undermines trust. But what you can do is you know what class it was in. And you can sit all that class down and it's like going back to primary school and give them all a good old fashioned telling off and make it very clear that it's not acceptable and communicate the expectations of communication. Um, but we can't de-anonymize them to individual levels um, for that sort of thing because it removes all that um, element of trust. The, the gray area and the area we're, we're looking at now, uh, we've done a little bit of research on is when there's say mental health issues expressed in these comments, is it, is it, is it in the student's best interest to de-anonymize them at that point? Because these systems are all interlinked and there is a possibility to do that. But once you do that, it's basically opening those floodgates. So we've got to be very, very careful and very strict procedures and protocols and thresholds for when you would de-anonymize an individual student versus just giving um, everyone a row in the class. And it really comes down to safeguarding and that student's well-being, basically. And if there's um, some worry about how they're doing, then we'd absolutely de-anonymize them or the institution would. Um, in terms of, again, another aspect of trustworthy is we work with institutions, these individual universities, but we allow them to compare themselves against their peers. And that's where acting as like a clearinghouse, as an intermediary is um, really useful because it's going to take a big leap for a university to give all of its data to another university to look at. But they will, if we are very clear with what we're doing with the data, allow us to look at all the institution's data and make those comparisons um, with the sector without sort of de-anonymizing the institutions, if that makes sense. So you get all the benefits by being this middleman, this intermediary. Um, and I think that's why it's really important 
that we have very clear guidelines of what we do with the institution's data and that it basically belongs to them still. We process it, but it's always university data and the models we generate, we keep so we can then compare between the different institutions. And that simplicity and clarity there really helps build that trust um, because these are you know very large models. These automated systems can be quite scary and you're worried where the data is going and how long the data is kept. But if we can be very clear about who owns that data, who gets to process it, but who gets to keep it, then we can overcome a lot of those. Oh, sounds really, yeah, sounds really interesting. I mean, that building the trust is obviously a hugely important thing for any AI systems. And one of the main things we're trying to do, especially, um, you know, I know the Scottish government is working on it to build trust in AI algorithms and things like that. So, yeah, thanks for your the comments on that. Really interesting. So that's the end of my, my questions. Uh, we're looking forward to welcoming you to the um, the Scottish AI Summit um, next month. Um, but yeah, what's next for Student Voice in terms of, you know, what's next on your plan for the future? Yeah, so we're working um, with a number of different institutions now individually. So we can work that large sector data sets and then we can then use those models created to work with individual institutions to really dig deep. So what I'm really excited about is being able to go back into the historical archives of all these free text comments that institutions have, be able to show what students have been saying over time, how that's changed with the pandemic, what aspects have improved, what hasn't, and really basically get get in there and help institutions um, improve their teaching, frankly, because, you know, I've been in higher education for a number of years now and there's lots of low hanging fruit and it could be so much better than it is. And these tools with their speed and their sort of their generality can be really useful tool for that. So I'm really, really excited about that. And again, uh, looking to expand both within the UK and internationally as well, and really just keep on top of it. It's such a, just such a satisfying um line of work because as hopefully I got across in the little intro there was I care about this education stuff and this is the way that I see I have maximum leverage to improve education across Scotland and the UK and potentially internationally. Yeah well your, your passion for the topic certainly comes across. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and it's it's really you know really it it doesn't strike you as an interesting topic at first but when you dig a bit deep in um you can get so much from it you can do you can do so much good from it so it's really interesting to chat to you i'm afraid that's about all we have time for but um thanks so much for joining us and yeah, we'll see you, you in the march yeah i look really look forward to it. it should be a fantastic panel talking about data and ai and education so i'm hoping to see a lot of people there brilliant take care thank you